Hi, hello, bonjour, and namaste. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I'm your host, Anne Mulatala. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Archana Jain. Archana is an accomplished PR and communications professional who has been at the forefront of her industry since her beginning in the field in the 1990s. We had the pleasure to work together and get to know each other over the years in my previous or earlier career. And I always had a deep admiration for her business acumen, her team's creativity, their kindness. We had a lot of fun together, even though we worked hard, of course. Archana has been at the head of her own firm, PR Pundit, an integrated communications consultancy since 1998. With her wonderful team, they have worked with leading global and luxury brands from Adidas, Birkenstock, Christian Louboutin, of course, Estée Lauder companies, Lamborghini, Ralph Lauren, and the list goes on. I was delighted to learn that PR Pandit is, so far, the only Indian PR company to have won a gold lion for PR in Cannes in 2017 for their campaign for ITC Savlon. Archana is widely recognized as a leading personality and influencer in PR, communication and, and media in India, and I always viewed her as a pioneer. So it was a real pleasure for me to get an opportunity to talk to her and and to get to hear her story. So I hope that you'll find this as interesting and enjoyable as I did. Happy listening. Archana, it's so lovely to see you. Welcome to Out of the Clouds. Thank you, Anne. It's actually a precious opportunity to be talking to you. It means a lot to be a guest on Out of the Clouds. I sort of love and admire the way you move countries and claim your own little spot everywhere you go. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Claiming my own spot. That makes sense. Absolutely. So one of the ways I love to start conversations with my guests is to ask them about their journey to sort of freely tell me and tell my listeners who they are, where they're from, and and perhaps starting with where you grew up and what you studied. Okay. In India, we call ourselves the military brat. I don't know if that's a terminology understood in any other part of the world. Yeah. But because my father served in the military, Air Force to be specific, we spent sort of time away in different cities and it was really about assimilating diverse cultures very, very early on. So it's not that you grew up on a single street and you just knew you had your six or eight besties and you kind of went through growing up pains with them. No, sadly, we didn't have that comfort, but it pays us well when you sort of learn to sort of deal with change very early on. While I was born in Delhi, I, my formative years at sort of schooling were in a place called Shillong. It's in a state called Meghalaya in the northeast of India. In fact, we used to call it the Scotland of the East because they have these beautiful green rolling plains and it rains and it has that typical English rain. Oh, really? To sort of put it in context to <laughs> all your listeners. Mm. So, you know, that's where I grew up and um, I did my master's in business economics in Delhi. And my first job was in PR with a hotel company. Oh, that's so fateful. May I ask why you chose business to study? Frankly, there was a choice between accountancy and business and business economics sounded like something that would be something of the future that would, you know, today people want to scramble to learn economics. And I guess at that point, it was just beginning to come into being. So we said, well, yeah, why not? I had a head for business. I had a head for numbers. I was good at mathematics, but didn't want to do an academic career. Certainly wanted to do something which was more market research oriented. And so how was that start in PR? I went out looking for a job in market research, actually responded to an advertisement saying that. And then the HR at the hotel company told me, no, we've decided we're not going to have that opening anymore. 
So I said, oh, you've given it away already? So they said, no, we just don't think we need that job profile. But what we have is a job of a public relations manager. I said, well, I just know two lines about it. I read it in Philip Kotler. So they said, well, you have time? I said, yeah, I'm jobless. I certainly have time. So they said, well, here's the manual. Sit down and read. So I read through the manual and I said, I like the sound of what this job entails. And I had a three-member graphic department in my first job. I had a secretary to myself. That was my first job. Why do you think I fell in love with PR? (laughs) This is the career for me. I mean, I'm the boss. (laughs) So it had a lot of responsibilities, but it had a lot of independence. And that's what I love. Be able to shape things very early on as my first job itself. So that's it. Then never turned back. Two years later, went on and started with a consulting firm in... Because, you know, in a hotel company, we were, I worked for the Hyatt Regency Delhi and they had only one hotel at that time in India, the Hyatt. You know, today they have many, many properties. It would have been different if I joined today, I guess. And then the consulting firm and five and a half years there and then went on to set up PR Pandit. Wow. It's fascinating to hear you reflect on that sense of independence, because I think that it is indeed from my experience When I started, it's probably different nowadays. It was a hallmark of what I found interesting in in public relations, that necessity to think of your feet, to be creative, even though it's strategic and business related. Mm -hmm. True that, absolutely. I think it's challenging, but if work isn't challenging, I guess we would lose interest rapidly, wouldn't we? I mean, I don't think you're just looking for comfort in the fact of doing the same old, same old. Probably not someone like you or someone like me, no? <laughs> I think yes, that, I that, so. that combination of independence and creativity makes the challenge less frightening, less daunting. Yeah. Less daunting. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. True, yeah. Yeah. Very true. So what I found really interesting in PR after coming out of, of university is that also there's a very tangible result when you've done a good job. Within three to six months to maybe nine months, depending on what it is that you're working on, you can tell whether the work you've done has paid off. And I think that's one of the reasons why I really got to enjoy it so much because I was like, ha look what I've accomplished. What's we we as a team. Yes, mm. absolutely. Oh, no, yeah, definitely. I think everywhere, and I've seen that with myself, I've seen it with young people that work at our company, If you give them those early wins, they seem to love it much more. If you give them a really tough assignment to do where you know there is going to take nine months for them to even see results, they burn out and they say, I don't know whether this is something for me. Mm -hmm. But if you give them something where they're seeing great results coming out, you know, exposures are there, clients are sending in their sort of testimonials to say, what a fabulous job. They just sort of embrace the profession a lot more. And so I guess... That's where I felt maybe luck played a role. Otherwise, I don't believe in luck. I'm a, I'm a sort of hardcore, hard work person and who believes, you know, you know, we can change destiny if we just put our heads to it. But yes, I think it was the diversity of experience that came my way early on. Acknowledgement from senior top management. And I believe that sort of is something very, very unique in our profession. And PR, you talk to the top leaders, right? You're not in a silo talking to only your own peers, etc. You're dealing with the managing director. You're dealing with the, in the hotel company, I was dealing with the top hotel uh, general manager. Plus, I was part of the committee. I was the youngest team member, but I had to know what was happening in the hotel. So I had to know every VIP that was coming through. I had to know about every event that was happening in the hotel. So it kind of got me engaged with the brand, the organizations in a more holistic manner. And I think there's a learning in it from, for all of us. How is it that you get everybody to understand the company or become one of them unless you don't share or make them part of that decision-making and, and we tend to overlook that, I think, in everyday life. We give them their slice of work and say, do it and we'll talk later without telling them what the whole piece is all about. 
Mm, it's so interesting you should say that. It, this really echoes my own experience. I think that one of the reasons why I was able to also be good at PR is because I had so much access. Mm. And at the time, because the company was really tiny, and for our yeah. listeners, this is when I worked at very early days at Christian Louboutin, I was doing PR and wholesale. So I was passing the information around yeah. <laughs> from Vogue or Harper's Bazaar to Harvard Nichols or Selfridges. And because I wasn't bullshitting people, people get into it because they then too somehow become involved yeah. in the company. So there's a um, different kind of relationship and sense of authenticity. Yeah. What was it like when you moved though from hospitality, which is a very unique, I view hospitality as like top sort of learning school for most things. When you come to fashion, we're a bit messier, to be fair. <laughs> um, what was it like when you moved into consulting? Well, at that point of time, if I were looking at airlines and, and hotels, they were the only two sort of, at least industries in India that was employing PR. While the government did have its PR machinery, but it was of a different nature. So it was, it was good beginnings. It was 90s when business media was just about coming to age. So PR was just about beginning at that point. Fashion PR did not exist at that time. Fashion PR has happened in my uh, sort of lifetime at pretty much, I would think, PR pundits. So no more than 24 years old is what I would think it is in India so we sort of, you know, were beginning to see that, yes, enterprises wanted as business media. There was one business magazine. There were a couple of pink papers and we had dailies that had a dedicated business page every day. There was a need for businesses to start communicating in a very organized fashion to the media. So that's really what I sort of started out with when I was at a consulting firm earlier. And then over that period of five and a half years, we saw a certain amount of change happening in terms of television journalism coming in business. So, you know, business television came into being in India. So we've seen a change every six or seven years in India in the landscape. When I started my career, barely business journalism was there, then came television journalist and it was great fun to host a press conference for our clients and have 40 television cameras all stacked up there and we said oh and you know that was the thrill and saying okay you know this is what we will be look at the ROI and it was only measured in terms of the value that you could generate and we oh and thrilling and then when that died you know kind of came the lifestyle titles came about 2000 and Five, six, seven, around that area, you know, Vogue into, came into India and uh, the features media started sort of developing alongside. And I think that's kind of was really something that I wanted to do. I was tired of business media and I said, let me do something which was a little bit more consumer focused. You know, let's not wait to when a company is going to be plowing in a, a billion dollar investment and hold a press conference. What about? For, this, for the nuances of what their product and service offers. Why can't we talk about the Masio that gives great service on an aircraft if you were talking Virgin or, <laughs> or if it was, you know, any other aspect of, you know, just the product that they offer. And then, you know, let's say listicles of 10 ways that you need to pack for a holiday if you were representing, let's say, Samsonite or any other suitcase brand. So, you know, that avenue was not, or the value of color, if you're talking about wall color sort of thing, you know, why should you choose this color? How does it impact your moods and sentiments? I was looking to do that. That's really how I got started at PR Pandit. And we said, let's do something which is going to be B2C and want to be able to create some compelling campaigns around that would sort of create a little bit more brand trust be able to sort of say, okay, yes, create a need for that product and probably move products off the shelves. And I don't ever ascribe to the fact that we can make a difference to sales. We can influence it, but yes, the larger uh, value of PR will always be to be an image driver. And that's what our roles are. So we move it into people's hearts for sure, but why not even look at somewhere that we can move it into their cards? Yes, I like that. Moving into people's hearts. That's a wonderful expression. So 
you've been at the head of your own company for almost 24 years, according to LinkedIn, mm-hmm. <laughs> by the time we tape this interview, which is absolutely wonderful. I'd love for you to share with me and with our listeners, what was your vision when you decided to build your own company? I think a little bit I captured in my earlier response to you, and it was really to do some benchmarking work. I used to read PR books and we didn't have any in India. You know, we had to only read global case studies and all the global case studies spoke about all these various ways, a lot of American textbooks and and British textbooks. And they would talk about how you could do an interesting campaign where consumers are involved. And we said, we don't do that. We tend to just take our message to the press, get them to write a lovely story and say, hey, we've done PR. What, where is the consumer engagement? We've never thought about that. And you know, why can't we talk that? And so that's where I said, let's try and build a company which is going to be more consumer focused. Most consulting firms in India at that time also had a very corporate focus because if you're looking to develop a firm which will be extremely top line heavy or profitable, then it wasn't consumer focused, wouldn't, was the incorrect thing to do. But I was doing it for the love of PR and trying to sort of carve a niche for ourselves. And I think, yeah, 24 years later, I think we today are recognized in that, have done interesting work, have been there when international brands came into India, knocking into on our shores. They taught us really. And that was really the advent of integrated PR in our country. We didn't have integrated PR. We didn't understand that. And it was because of international brands. We were told that you're the custodian of the brand. You've got to figure out, you know, let's build a network for the brand to actually create an environment for demand. And that's really where we were. So initially in about, like I mentioned, brands like Gucci, Todd's, etc. came in about 2007, 2008. Before that, the landscape was largely all these brands, if at all they were available in the country, they would be available through a distributor arrangement. So they came in on their own there. And that's when Vogue arrived on our shows and luxury lifestyle PR came into being. And we sort of uh, had already been doing what I term as feature-oriented public relations. So we knew the features media, but as the landscape evolved and there were more and more media to write about that, the finer nuances or be able to sort of, you know, help us curate the right stories and to where we could tell them that kind of helped us sort of grow in this profession. And obviously after that came digital media and we sort of worked with them. Influencers came into the marketplace. We sort of definitely were the earliest to embrace them and say, hey, listen, let's. And I think a lot of credit would go to our clients that they were welcoming of them and said, yes, let's experiment with that. Let's talk, let's let's sort of make this happen. And um, today, 10 years or 20 years later, we we can, we could, you know, we've got friends that say, yeah, thanks to you guys that we were able to sort of build a career. And we said, well, you know, thanks to our clients that we were able to sort of work with you together and make this happen. India's uh, sort of influencer landscape and PR Pandit's journey with that has been is kind of synonymous. Yeah, I was thinking when you were mentioning the dates, like when Vogue India arrived, when the other brands were coming in, was just on the cusp before Twitter and then Instagram arrived on the scene. And you do have some phenomenal influencers and celebrities in India. So you, you certainly had quality people to work with. Yeah. I, I want to say... Before we go on and ask you more questions, I'd love for you to tell people like me, whose first language isn't English, about the origin of the name PR Pandit, because I learned it as I was doing my research for this interview. Again, I'm sure people know Pandit means guru. The word came in about the time when I was studying up PR Pandit. That's the time when the word had actually been introduced into the Oxford Dictionary. And I said, well, what do we call ourselves? So let's be a little bit cheeky. Let's call ourselves that we understand this profession. We're the masters of it. So hence PR Pandit. So do we the PR gurus? And, you know, incidentally, our logo has three lines. And the three lines uh, in India, if you ever come across a very a priest in a temple 
or the sadhus uh, by the banks of the river Ganga, you'll always find there are three lines on their forehead. And so it's something called Tripundara. Uh-huh, I know uh, it's a Sanskrit word uh-huh. and uh, it embodies uh, sort of our quest for excellence through the three lines of will, knowledge and action. So we kind of blended that together and we said, here we have, we have something that will be understood, but will have an Indian personality. We don't want to ever be sort of most firms were called good relations and perfect relations. And so we said, we're not going to be better relations or whatever. So let's be original. Mm, there you go. So first of all, kudos to you to dare <laughs> setting the stage by calling yourself that. I think it's wonderful. For those listening, over the course of my experience, I do believe that Archana and her team are PR gurus. So I fully vet the terminology. In a very limited landscape of India. Yes, we could say that. Well, I mean, you really did deliver amazingly, amazingly over the years that we worked together. So I think you've already perhaps answered that question already. But for anybody who listening who doesn't really know about the public relations sort of landscape, particularly for today, why does it matter? Why does PR matter? I think... To explain PR, one needs to always compare it with advertising, right? Uh, Because advertising is commonly understood. And I think all of us in this profession have had had to explain this to family and things like that, that. What do you do? And so I read somewhere once that advertising is what you pay for and publicity is what you pray for. But I don't believe in prayers in that respect. Yes. (laughs) But simply put, it is about earned publicity. So instead of paying for it, it's a science of how we seek third party endorsements for a brand, for an organization, for its values, for its ideas, for its point of views, so that they're able to harness a better environment in which they could work or they could produce better products. So PR is about telling a good story to the right people to reach the right or the relevant audience. Sorry, it's not a single line, but that's how it is. I never really want a single line. This is a long form podcast, so (laughs) we can get going. Yeah, because it's also frequently confused with glorified launch, which it isn't, right? PR is all about really how do we create a groundswell of brand support over time? Mm -hmm. Because we need to change consumer behavior. We need to influence them. We need to have sort of periodic sort of engagements, it's a long-term game. Mm. So, I mean, there's, got, there's so much idea generation that happens in PR. I mean, there's many things you have to do as a business or as an enterprise or a brand as well to be able to get that. Thank you so much for answering that. What I really like about the type of public relations and communications that you and your team, your company works on, also I think reflects what you were saying earlier about the fact you wanted to be in contact and engage customers. Mm-hmm. I think that for those friends of mine who have heard about it, but don't get it or don't feel like they like it or like public relations, mm-hmm. I think sometimes there's still some form of understanding of, but someone paid for something down the line and it's maybe hidden. And my experience, and I think yours, is that A lot of great PR comes from education of the media and relationships. Because if there's no connection and no relationship, (laughs) then there's no features, then there's no results, right? No, absolutely. I think it's a combination. Sometimes while you may know an editor very well and my experience, and you can have a drink with him or her, unless you have a message and you have a story to tell at the right time and the opportune time and which is aligned to way that publication looks at that subject, you're not going to get anywhere. So relationship alone will never drive results. We've knocked on doors and I'm sure you have also in your career knocked on doors where you never knew that individual and that was the first meeting and you walked away with, with the three-page feature. 
because you had a story and you sort of, yes, here's my opportunity to go. So we need to definitely map opportunities that are available in the landscape. It could be a podcast. It could be a television interview. It could be something which is a features interview. And today it could be a paid format collaboration that you may want to do with a particular media and work that out. If that's how you're going to get more people to understand that subject, so be it. So we don't believe at PR Pandit or I think the evolved PR industry today to pass say does not believe it's paid versus earned. It is a combination of paid. It's a shared earned and owned because one needs to. How is it that, you know, if let's imagine, you know, you're talking to a big CEO today and we're doing an interview What is the value? Why should the CEO be talking to you? Yes, there's a certain reach your podcast is getting to. But beyond that, it's an opportunity to put it on LinkedIn and create such a lot of impressive employer branding for the institution. And so if they don't plan the owned piece well, it's only marginally utilized. So that's why it's got to be a combination of all of these platforms. So we are increasingly, when we say integrated, we mean that. It's not just saying, okay, we'll do press, consumer, all of that, or events and et cetera. But we will say, well, we will table opportunities where you may need to pay. You may need a particular, let's say, a celebrity to tweet about it or to put it up on Instagram because that's going to come in the, on, in the paid format. But that's going to get value because... That personality is aligned to exactly what you are trying to say. I like what you're saying. So essentially, it's moved on so much in the past 25 years since it started. But what I'm hearing you say, it's all about finding the right blend for each client. Absolutely. And being clever, strategic and using all of a brand's owned media. Yes. Including LinkedIn, not just the Facebook and Instagrams and TikToks. Mm-hmm. I think during COVID, we've seen the emergence of LinkedIn, resurgence of LinkedIn, to be you know, honest. It's become more powerful. It's certainly something that people have had time to spend and maybe you know, add more content and engagement to that platform. And, and we've seen that grow far more effectively than Twitter. Mm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens to Twitter next, actually. Yes. I was reading uh, this morning, there's a, a columnist I love called Caitlin Moran. And um, she's been on Twitter and been very active for a long time. Yes. She had a different take about, about Elon from a lot of the other journalists that I've read recently. So let's see what he does with Twitter and what happens when there's no more bots. Absolutely. We were talking about the same thing the other day. We said, just when we had started to write off Twitter... You know, I said, you know, we're going to have to revisit it. (laughs) Something interesting is coming. (laughs) I hope so. So communications and PR has changed so much since you started. Could you tell me what is, as of today, (laughs) it could be different in a week, but Mm. as of today, what is the piece that you find the most challenging for you and your team? Being a generalist firm, as we are classified, right? But what I find at the core of our profession, what we grapple with is the fact that, you know, while we are consulting with the same names as maybe the top management consultants uh, also consult with, but we're not treated as par at par with their services. And that is something that as an industry, we think, you know, why can't we be remunerated at the same rates as they are? So that is a large challenge that we need to. So the projection of the PR industry per se has to evolve. We cannot be seen as less critical consultants. So if business re-engineering consultants like McKinsey or Accenture can earn top dollars, we need to sort of up our profession in that. I mean, that's the larger goal. And the other thing is, you know, I guess like every services industry, talent remains a universal challenge for our industry. We've seen that, I mean, at every forum, international, domestic, we keep talking about how is it that we can get better quality talent to come along, work with us. There's so much effort has to go into training 
the institutions that we have only are able to prepare them in a very limited manner for the profession that impedes our, I mean, the growth of the industry per se, these two areas of the value that we earn and hence we're not able to attract the best talent either, right? Because they Mm. go off to these other professions. Mm -hmm. It's interesting what you're saying about the remuneration because I'm trying to be really present and be with you. And in my mind, I'm sort of scanning some of the other agencies that I've worked with across different countries. I wonder if one of the reasons why it's hard is because, as you said before, it's also a long game. You need to invest in PR for two, three years easily before you get to see like really interesting return. And I think this initial investment where management doesn't see ROI versus whatever targets they may have is what devalues the profession and and the hard work that gets put into play. Mm. Could be, yeah. In my lifetime, a lot of time when within three months, clients turn around and say, well, I don't think it works for us. And we saw, well, we did tell you it was long-term and won't going to show you results immediately. Just because you hired us doesn't mean that you're going to become, be able to change the perception overnight. Mm. We are a young profession. It's yeah. PR is not an age-old sort of practice. There's limited understanding about it. So we have to contend with that. Mm-hmm. And I think if we don't, if you're not talking enough about it, then the fault lies within the industry. We need to change the perception. We need to get more and more people to understand what it takes mm. and what PR means. And I think we'll win eventually. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. I remain convinced about the, the profession and what it can do. So if you were to just think of, of an opportunity in the market, what would you say it is today in terms of communication? I think, you see, with digital, definitely that's kind of, a given today and that is certainly but in, in terms of the services that we offer I would think bulk of the consumer co- communications work is happening in the purpose domain we are doing a lot of community advocacy programs because authenticity is absolutely imperative and for that it's no longer talking about the big macro influencers or the celebrity advocates, but more the real peers, right? You and me that have the power to influence other consumers to buy. So we're seeing a lot of play in these two domains by and large. Interestingly, in the profession, we're also getting a level playing field with maybe a digital agency or creative agency because you know, they are looking at made the best idea win. And since all of us are now working on that integrated model, I think it's interesting times for the whole profession. Mm. Yes, of course. It's uh, made the best idea win. That's a really great point. Mm. I was about to ask you about purpose-driven communications and community advocacy. Would you tell us a little bit more about that? Let's say if you're trying to sell a soap, right? Or a car. In the old days, you would just attach a very famous personality to it. And you would say, well, yeah, I'm holding the soap and I'm kind of saying, okay, this is my television campaign and I, it gives me softness and it makes my skin glow and all of that. Now, those are conversations that are pretty much dated now. As the differentiators dissipate, that's really something that everybody offers. But... What you're finding at the commodity level, at that sort of level of the mass market, you need to sort of somehow find or associate with a particular cause, with a particular purpose. Stakeholders want that. Consumers want that. They buy into products because of the values that they see with a particular brand. And that's what has led to the growth of purpose-based communication. So it's about, you know, saying, well, during COVID, yes, every antiseptic brand in the country would be talking about hand washing. But how do you keep up with the core tenet of antiseptic, uh, of continuing to hand wash? That's a very, very important thing because that's going to keep you healthy, keep you away from illness. And in India, if you realize we eat with our hands a lot, right, we tend to not use cutlery. And we use hands most times. 
So I mean, that's been integrated as a subject into an entire hand washing campaign for the same antiseptic brand. Then there is a brand that does skincare and has clinics. It has clinics where people can go for your dermal problems. Now they've looked at inclusivity. We've looked at inclusivity for them and saying, well, you know, how is it that you can provide employment to the transgender? So society wants this. Young people today want that. And they're not happy to subscribe to a particular brand if they're not associated with the good of society. A fashion label, which has been used to doing a lot of work in craft, has, you know, is trying it put out a campaign saying, okay, we're equally beautiful. Everyone is equally beautiful because they want that the fundamental ethos of the brand is diversity and equality. So those are the reasons why we've seen purpose-driven communications really come of age. I'm so glad I asked you that question because brands, particularly the larger corporations, know it's important to you know have values stated somewhere. Most of us are looking for, and I speak of myself here as a consumer, is I'm looking to see it in the behaviors, in the actions, or reflected in the way that the products are made, or like you said, in the way that the products are presented to the public, so that it feels like it's more than just something there to attract our dollars or, you know. Absolutely. So no greenwashing. It's got to be real, real stuff that you endorse. People subscribe to that values and it's, it's embedded in their DNA. How much leeway do you get with your clients to influence them in that direction? Well, again, this is long-term, and So Mm -hmm. you kind of definitely work with them long-term, but there must be something within what they do firstly to trigger that. Like, for example, when for editors, we work with them and they have an association with Parley and because that's a, a particular shoe that they make with recycled waste that they gather from the ocean, you know, before the plastic goes into the ocean, they sort of uh, gather all that waste material and create it into a reusable, reusable yarn, which then gets made into a shoe. So once you have a proposition like that, you say, well, how is it that you can claim that as a value that you subscribe to and go put it out? And that led to a big campaign for us in which we call the run for the ocean. It was about finding an agent of change in India that was already doing a lot of work at the uh, in the city of Bombay, working on the beaches. So we sort of said, join forces with them to say, okay, let's make this happen. Got buses on the weekends to take people who wanted, volunteers who wanted to go in and help out with that effort. And that lended up to, you know, like about three to 4,000 people running on that particular, one particular day, to get the larger awareness on about, you know, how important it is to control what you put into the oceans, because that's going to be the only way that you can save your planet. It germinates in many different ways. You can't create a program if there isn't a intent at the client's end. So, but we can only say, well, these are important things that you could possibly look at. So, Sometimes they choose the very commercial angles and we have to because we don't run their companies. We certainly can only advise them that is the value of this. But sometimes you find progressive companies very, very willing. We're finding an increasing number of those now. Yeah, I imagine that to your earlier point, that's something that is generational. And also, I think a change in the consumer values from what has happened since the, the beginning of COVID. Yeah, absolutely. If you're listening to your consumers, you will see that that's what they want. Mm. When I first met you, I think that I'm trying to remember exactly where it was and I can't remember, sadly. I remember accurately spending a, a really great evening with you and a couple of the heads of our other external agencies, namely Renata Grabert from Brazil, from yeah. Support wasn't it in Paris that day when we got, we were stuck at the Moroccan restaurant? Yeah. Oh, yes, exactly. Yes. When it was snowing outside. When it was snowing outside. That's where it was. Mm. And also we had Feride for the first time, Feride Tansung from La Part PR in Istanbul. Yes. And I remember meeting the three of you in particular and thinking, wow, 
these women are amazing. So I think that I probably wanted to have an interview with you since the day I met you to find out more about your, your journey. One of the things that struck me is all of you were pioneers in this field. You built your own companies and all of you are women in countries that are developing mm. in general, economically, but also uh, you're at the forefront of this sort of relationship with media and the consumer. So of course, I'm a little bit curious, what has it been like to be a woman at the head of your own company? Very daunting to start with. It was because, you know, let's say when you did have workplaces were dominated by men. And so your client customers were largely men. And, you know, did they respect women adequately with a slight degree of skepticism? It's changed a lot. And what is nice to see today, Anne, is that young people are getting that respect. I remember having to dress up to look slightly older always because so many years ago I had a a baby face and I said, you know, this doesn't work. So, you know, I had to put on very starched saris that made me look very matronly, almost like our Prime Minister Indira Gandhi at that point. And, you know, go on marching into corridors and say, hey, listen, I know what what needs to be done and this is how we work it with. <laughs> yeah. Those kind of things. But that that was different. But today it's changed. But what I also found that, you know, over time, we weren't welcoming of women at workplaces. When people would drop out to have babies or nurture their family, sadly, few organizations would encourage them to come back to into the workplace. There was no flexibility that was accorded to them in their, in their job roles, in their timings. I remember earlier interviews that used to constantly uh, sort of demand from a woman whether, you know, what were her you know, plans to have children very early on in this sort of in the job interview. And in those kind of things, we had to change. And that's been wonderful. Today, we are an 85% women workforce, you know, and our top 100% women leadership team. And I think somewhere along the line, just being able to help women balance their personal and professional commitments has been very satisfying at one end for us. We introduced work from home way back in 2004. You know, Gori, right? I love Gori. How is yeah. she? <laughs> Gori sort of when she's, oh, she and I started working together, she's had both her children and she's worked right through it with the exception of the maternity period that, you know, because she wanted to be home and make sure that, you know, she was just checking in on the nannies while she's there. So she worked remotely. Mm-hmm. She would come in maybe a couple of days and most times she would just be remotely managing a fairly large team. Yeah. Uh, so we were practicing that. So suddenly during COVID, when we had to work from home, it didn't seem like a strange thing. It just felt well, whatever we've practiced with, you know, the four or five people that have been using this in the past, we will just extend it to the rest of the team. We were practicing flexible working hours as well, because what happens is there is such a lot of traffic in India. So how is it that we can sort of get them to sort of beat that rush hour or to maybe, you know, on a particular day, they wanted to manage some inside. Women are the caregivers, are the uh, sort of uh, managers at home as well. So if they needed to run some errands, they could, you know, come in late or leave early. Those kind of things that we certainly did, apart from following government regulations on maternity and paternity policies. So we've had a gender diverse approach always to our recruitment and um, lucky to have so many capable women under one roof to sort of steer the company together. And that's been the biggest thing, you know, we gave them role models that it's possible to continue working, continue pursuing a career. Despite being, you know, having to manage families. And so we are. I think that's the biggest contribution, I would think. That's um, that's fantastic. It makes my heart feel very warm and fuzzy. (laughs) Because I do remember conversations around maternity leaves and... And all of those subjects. And it's different from one country to another. And I understand... I also try to put myself in the shoes of the employer who doesn't want to set a precedent because then they have to manage people differently. But then at the same time, what I was reflecting on in my own journey is that people is what makes work worthwhile, not just the work. And if we don't look after each other, what's the point? 
right? Absolutely. I mean, people will work for you if maybe you are unable to sort of pay wages of industry standards because you treat them well. You understand each other a lot better. Mm. Of course. See, I knew you were a pioneer because that's the word I had used in my questions. (laughs) And so I'm so glad. No, I think that you're being very generous. (laughs) Well, that's my opinion anyway. So I saw an interview, I think it was on YouTube, um, that you did with Come Speak not too long ago with Amit Prabhu. Yeah. And I really, really enjoyed it. And he asked you to share what was a favorite campaign of yours. And I want to ask you that same question because I was really touched by the one that you'd, you'd talked about. So what is a campaign that has marked you as to the power of PR? If I recollect, I would have spoken about the tampon yeah. in the state of Germany. Mm-hmm. And this was while I was uh, a jury for an award, uh, sort of. I couldn't believe it. I said, you know, this is how ingenious we can get. And that's what said, you know, that's something that I need to at some point of time do for sure. And just for your listeners, you know, just to bring them up to speed on this, this is tampons uh, were being taxed at a ridiculous luxury rate in the state of Germany. And the PR agency said, well, we're going to embed that tampon in actually a book and sell it as part of that. And that would just come at a, at a much lower taxation bracket and take that to the government and say, well, you know, this is possible to do and make the change. So, you know, you, you have the power to change. That is why we pursue PR. I mean, recently, I don't know, I'm sure you saw L'Oreal's recent work with Kate Winslet on self-worth. Yeah. I was just like, oh my God. It was, I would say, you know, that's another campaign that we said we would love to do at some point of time. You know, so we, we're constantly admiring work in the industry mm. to inspire ourselves to say, how is it that we can, we can make a difference? Mm-hmm. We've done work for in India for, you know, Benetton, like galvanizing the youth to recognize that their vote counts. And this has been when India goes to vote. And, you know, because a lot of people don't go out and cast votes. So that's an important thing to get them to go out and vote. So it's interesting campaigns around that, getting rappers to be part of it and the voice of the youth, because, you know, they are influencers, you know, so not at just the store level, but also digitally giving them a voice. I spoke about the run for the ocean where we were onboarding the change agents to make sure that people realize that they shouldn't be sending, you know, plastic waste into the ocean. So those, when you're trying to sort of make a change, do sort of make our uh, work more fulfilling for us. And if we can make a difference in a small way, why not? Yeah, that sounds wonderful. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is perhaps you've already responded to this a little bit, explaining how you already work remotely. You're responsible for a team of how many people? We're 160 now in Delhi, Mumbai and Bangalore. That that is a large company. In the last year, a lot. Yes. Last year has been good. So I'd love for you to tell me, it must have been a challenge for you to lead them and to support them throughout the COVID period. Is there anything that you can share or that that worked or any stories that you want to tell about how you guys supported each other during this time? The first phase of COVID, which happened in April, we all went into these nationwide lockdowns, right? And businesses at that point of time and were stumped. They didn't know what was coming their way. I mean, everybody was, you know, not sure with, you know, where this COVID would take them. And so for us, we ended up losing in the first half year or almost about, or the first quarter, that was the first quarter of our financial year, April to June, about 60% of our business. Wow. And it was, uh, there were times where Gauri and I and my other colleague, Nupur, we would say, well, you know, I don't know whether we will survive this, but they said, no, no, of course we would. So what we did was collectively take everybody into confidence and saying, well, you know, this is the way things are tumbling. And they saw it because they suddenly, many of them didn't have work to do because their clients said, let's just pause our services till we know better. 
they did realize it, but we actually did series of town halls with all of them and said, you know, this is the way we are. So let's all just collectively sort of rationalize our wages. You know, we may have a chance to survive. So at the top team level, people like us and Gauri, et cetera, we kind of, I took a hundred percent, Gauri and all went 50%. You know, we, we did, we said, okay, let's just save because if we can conserve our resources. We have enough reserves that last us for up to six months. So if in six months, things don't change, then we can take a call whether we need to sort of run the business or shut it down. But touch wood, once three months was done and the economy started opening up, companies also sort of figured out their business plans. They sort of found solutions to sort of obviously start coming back at work and those needed to be communicated. Plus the diversity in the portfolio helped us because some businesses continued running. If you're running a consumer packaged goods business, which is, which is let's say soaps and shampoos and antiseptics or maybe something to eat, people were still consuming that through lockdown. So that businesses kept running. IT services businesses kept running. So the diversity in portfolio certainly helped. And that's a lesson that we had learned in, I think it was going back in 2010 or something when there was a global recession. Yeah. And we found that the retail and the, the fashion and the luxury brands had sort of really hit us. Uh, you know, it has hit us really bad on the bottom line when we weren't able to sort of grow sufficiently. So we, we are diversified. So this time with COVID, it helped us in that respect as well. But just taking people into confidence, working with them and really sharing the true picture worked to gain their confidence, gain their acceptance. And they, all of them, I must say, nobody got up and quit on us. And they all sort of worked hard to see how is it that we can get new projects and things like that, that we could possibly work to rebuild. And it was six months or yeah, the year didn't end very well that particular year. We were substantially lower than the previous year, but I'm glad to say that looking back today, which is two years to that time, we're better than when we had left off at the end of March in 2020. Today we are in a happier place, in a sort of a stronger place. So working with teams, uh, sharing again, like we mm. spoke earlier, sharing and making them part of the bigger picture helps to gain their confidence and to get a buy-in from them. But if we don't do that and you just give them a limited slice of it, then it becomes, you know, they'll only understand so much. So mm. it's, been, it's been tough. We, yes, the second phase last year at this point was very, very uncomfortable. Ugh. April 21 was a devastating time for India. I remember organizations, global and Indian sort of stepped forward to support the needy. Grants mm. came in from all over the world to kind of look at it. We ourselves at the industry level and at an organization level did whatever we could to find medical beds, to find doctors that could be on a helpline to provide oxygen concentrators to whoever could do it. All of that is something that the company did, you know, as much as we can. If there weren't any facilities available, there was there were times where we certainly were at a loss ourselves. Yeah, I remember, I think you shared on LinkedIn. Oh, it was heartbreaking. Yeah, it's, it was horrible last year. Well, I, I'm glad to see that the transparency approach that you used with your team and the commitment to also support other people in the difficult time has made a difference and has <laughs> gotten you over that hump, hoping that things get better and better from now onwards. This is me crossing all my fingers. No, absolutely. I think the vaccination has really helped ever since this time also the COVID spreading very rapidly currently. It's not that, you know, Same here. Yeah. yeah, but people don't have to rush to hospital. Mm -hmm. I think the vaccination is certain, certainly keeping it suppressed and it's keeping it something that a normal flu almost like a normal regular flu so a certain couple of uh, you know at least a week's rest and then they are bouncing back yeah absolutely let's hope that this goes away yeah totally mm. so as you know the podcast is like me <laughs> it explores life at the crossroads between business and and mindfulness 
because of my secondary occupation as a mindfulness meditation teacher. And I'm very interested in how all of us have different rituals to keep us grounded, to make us feel more at home in ourselves, especially when things are spinning all around us. So I'd love to hear from you. What are um, tools or tactics that you employ in general or anything that worked for you in, in particularly difficult times? If you were looking at during COVID, I got a new Labrador. And I thought that having that COVID baby around was just fabulous. Sort of gave us a reason to sort of nurture for something special. So that certainly helped us. But as a, as a rule in good times or otherwise, I just maintain a certain discipline around exercise, you know, to try and do that. Because, you know, if you don't put in that time every day, it builds up anxiety, it builds up discomfort, uh, specifically at my age now. So I look at putting in a, you know, at least a good 40 minutes exercise first thing in the morning before we're heading to work because evenings are not in our control. We're always, <laughs> out, we're always out and about in the city or with something which is either a client engagement or just, you know, without with friends, etc. So that's something. But on the other hand, it is travel is my absolute passion with sort of helps me relax, rejuvenate and find my peace with the world. So which is both a learning and an inspiration. So it could be traveled within the country in the last two years because of COVID where we have been able to cross borders. We've um, just put our things in the car and driven off and found a remote part of India and just sort of spent time working on Zoom from there. You don't have to go to work, so you may as well just go spend time away from the city. Mm. Can you tell us about a spot that you found that was particularly delightful? Oh, there's a lovely valley in close to a place called Manali mm-hmm. in north of India. It's called the Parvati Valley. Oh my God, it's just beautifully unique. It's, you know, the mountains are right there behind you and there's a beautiful river that's gushing around and you're just, you know, just, it's so, so a therapeutic. That's amazing. Parvati is my favorite Indian goddess. <laughs> okay, I'm going to yeah. look it up. <laughs> hey, I'm glad you know about Parvati. That's lovely. Oh, I don't know if you know, but I did my yoga teacher training in 2019. And where? I did it actually in Ibiza with a teacher okay. called Suzanne Faith. And on a misunderstanding, I didn't really do a lot of research. She had been super highly recommended and she's a really amazing teacher. Okay. But it was a lineage that is called Anusara Yoga. And that comes, it's a Bhakti lineage and it comes from Kashmir Shaivism. So I've got a, a very, <laughs> a very, a very evolved knowledge of Hindu gods and goddesses and cosmology nowadays. Oh, wow. You could teach me a few things then. Possibly at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so we're looking forward to having you in India soon or we can share a meal together and talk more about this. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I'm hoping perhaps by the end of the year, that'd be wonderful. I also heard somehow that you enjoy gardening. Well, you know, it's taken me away from another passion called pottery. Oh. I used to be a potter till I decided to move into this house and I built this home in 2002. And ever since, because of the garden around it, every sort of, you know, my all my weekends were consumed in tending to the garden. That is the reason. Yes, yes. So I do enjoy, you know, keeping a good garden, but mostly, yeah, but I feel bad that I'm not spending enough time on the potter's wheel. Okay. Well, I'd love to talk to you about that when we see each other. Yes. So I've prepared a few questions that I like to ask my guests at the end. So tell me, what is a favorite word of yours that you could tattoo on yourself, at least temporarily? Yeah, I know. I'm glad you're adding the temporary because tattoo never is what I say usually. But a word that I guess I would like to remind myself every day is would be grateful Mm. to count my blessings. Mm. What song best represents you? I can't think of a song that would represent me. You know what? I think... A wine would be the best way to describe me. Not that, uh, you know, yeah, I could say I'm getting better with age, but maybe the Whispering Angel, a benchmark for the new rosé with a balanced character. Oh, that's wonderful. (laughs) That's an evolution of my question. Which wine best represents you? That's lovely. (laughs) (laughs) What is a secret superpower that you have? 
Superpowers only hard work. I think that is the only way to success. You've got to work hard. There are no shortcuts. Thank you. A favorite book that you can recommend? Have you read Amitabh Ghosh? I don't think so, no. Okay, so you've got to read all his books. Cool. He's an amazing <laughs> writer. The book that got me hooked on to him is called Hungry Tide. Cool. So you've got to pick that up. That's really a lovely author. I mean, I love Indian writing. And I think very early on when Vikram Seth wrote his Suitable Boy, that's when I sort of started reading it. a lot of the Indian authors then. Oh, interesting. Because I did not read the book, but I did see the BBC series, which is absolutely amazing. Oh my God, I devoured it. You have to read the book. Yeah, it's not totally mm. uh, even, even better, I would think. So there's Amitabh Ghosh, that's good. That's lovely. And if you like medical books, then you've got to read something called The Emperor of All Maladies by Siddhartha Mukherjee. I've it's heard about, about the it. cancer. Yes. Someone told me about it this week, actually. Oh, um, and it is so beautifully written. It just so is gripping. But yeah, it's... Mm. Yeah. And he makes it... I can't believe that he is an oncologist. You know, I said, my God. He is definitely a literary star. Oh, wow. Okay. That's definitely yeah. going into Very good. my library. <laughs> what mm. is your favorite sound? I think, see, there are two ways that I like to travel. I travel into either the mountains or the beach. So on the beach, it's really the sound of the water lapping against the shore. That's lovely. I mean, the sort of the mountains, it's usually the, the sound of air that's whistling through the woods. Mm, lovely. So actually talking about places, where is somewhere that you visited that you felt had a real impact on who you are today? I think just growing up in the Northeast of India, that I think shaped me. Mm. I grew up in a place in a, in a lovely spot called Shalom. It gives me values. I didn't become like most of what Delhi people could be or uh, I mean, very aggressive. So that that's kept me and that's shaped me a lot. Mm. Yeah. It is also, a, it's matriarchal society. Oh. So I suddenly looked at the fact that yes, women can be the powerhouses. Women can shape the families mm. that they nurture. Rest of India is well, rather patriarchal, right? Mm. So that gave me that perspective. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. Imagining that you can step into a future version of yourself, what most important advice do you think that future you could give to present state you? Present state me. I would have to say calm down. (laughs) 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 But I think the one thing that I would have to tell myself if going back a few years, I would say believe in yourself. That's been something that has been, I've been a bit short of right through life. Mm. So just to, Remind myself that, yes, I can do things and I can, I can make a difference. Mm. And this is my last and my favorite question. What brings you happiness? Simple things, having conversation with Anne. <laughs> no, very, very small things can make me happy. Very, very. But largely it's been, you know, in a professional capacity, just the joy of mentoring team members, seeing them be recognized you know, on other platforms or chase their dreams and finding the most fabulous jobs uh, at companies does make me proud, totally proud. But otherwise, you know, popcorn or a glass of wine, watching the world go by is simple joys that I could live by. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you so much for your time, for indulging me in my thousands of questions. I'm exaggerating, but there were a few. Where can people find you if they'd like to connect and say hi? At AJ Pandit is what I call myself on Instagram. Mm-hmm. On LinkedIn, I'm Archana Jain. Mm-hmm. And my Twitter handle is also AJ Pandit. But I, I'm not so active on Twitter. Sure. Instagram and LinkedIn would be lovely. Wonderful. I will put the details and the links in the show notes anyway. So thank you so much for joining me. I hope that our listeners will have enjoyed our conversations as much as I personally did enjoy it. So thank you. I hope so too. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. And so hopefully see each other soon. Very soon. Yes. 
Thanks again to Archana for being my guest on the show today. If you'd like to find out more about her, about Pierre Pundit, or any of the topics that we covered today, you can head over to the show notes. Friends and listeners, thank you again for joining me. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to the show. And if you'd like to connect or get in touch with me, you can do so at Anvi on Twitter, on Instagram, or at underscore out of the clouds, where I also share guided meditations and other daily musings about mindfulness. You can find all the episodes and more as well on my website, anvimulatala.com. If you don't know how to spell it, that's also in the show notes. And also, I invite you to subscribe if you'd like to receive my bi-monthly newsletter. So that's it for today and this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Out of the Clouds. I hope that you will join me again next time. Until then, be well, be safe, and take care.